0: By the way, we are now a part of the Salesforce family. That's why we have a new home and a new look. Otherwise, you can expect the same great stories about success. If it seems like the world is kicking you to the sidelines, it can feel like the answer is to either knuckle under or push back. We've come to a dojo here in Vancouver, an Aikido dojo, to find a different kind of response, one that doesn't mean choosing between fight or flight.
1: My name is Doran Kronich, and I am the chief instructor of Vancouver Aikikai. In a way, you can uh, think of Aikido as the way of good energy. I we can transit simplistically as good. What? Key is universal energy, life energy, energy in the universe. And there is a the way, the way of good energy. So in Aikido, uh, we do not have uh, competition. And I think uh, this is a great thing. In competition, you are thinking more about the victory. And you're thinking more about overcoming your opponent than uh, you think about uh, developing your technique, developing uh, yourself as a person, and helping your partner develop themselves. Hi.
0: Head on conflict isn't the only way to deal with obstacles. It's often a lot more effective to focus on understanding yourself and seeing what other pathways that understanding can open. Or, in the words of the founder of Aikido, Morihei Yoshiba,
1: the greatest victory is the victory over
0: oneself. I'm Alexandra Samuel, and you're listening to Waste No Potential. Today, I want to talk about what seriously matters, fitting in. The older we get, the more we can see that fitting in is not just a trap, but often the very enemy of success. But there are so many pressures for conformity, so many signals about how we're supposed to look, how we're supposed to live, even what we're supposed to drive. It's one thing to recognize that fitting in is just not what it's cracked up to be. It's another thing to embrace and really live the three words that will help you find a more meaningful, lasting path to success. Don't fit in. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. How to give up on that urge, you know, that pressure to fit in. And then what happens when you finally do? There's no better illustration of that power than Gavin Armstrong. He's CEO and founder of the Lucky Iron Fish Enterprise. His company is focused on solving a huge, widespread threat to human health and doing it with a simple solution. It's a three-inch iron fish that you just drop into any hot liquid meal, and it gives you a much-needed source of iron. I'll let Gavin explain later on why that is such a powerful tool. But right now, I want to focus on one thing. In Gavin's story, we're going to learn about how one moment fundamentally changed the way he viewed his own identity and how that one change allowed him to make a much bigger impact on the world. But like most of us, he began his journey thinking he had to fit in if he wanted to do well in life. Gavin, I'm, I'm so glad you're joining us today. Tell me who you were in high school. What was the 15-, 16-, 17-year-old Gavin Armstrong like?
2: Uh, well, the Gavin, who I was in high school, was not who I was today. But my time in school was, was actually quite negative. Um, I was bu- bullied a lot by, by kids. Um, I was trying to wrestle with my sexuality and my sexual orientation. And I was a bit effeminate, and, and kids picked up on this called me quite nasty nicknames, you know, Gaven, Noodle Arms, uh, things like that. And so it was really um, a, a really negative experience in, in high school. Um, and so I was really uh, looking forward to going to, to university. Um, and so that was my plan, was just survive high school, get into university. And I actually had some teachers who say, give up on that ambition because you're not going to get into university. Um, your, your grades aren't where they are going to need to be, and um, you should maybe be thinking about another, another path. I wanted to go into finance and banking because I thought that if I could make a lot of money and, and live that Bay Street life, um, maybe come back to a, a high school reunion in a fancy suit in a fancy car, I could prove to all these people um, that I did something with my life. And, and I think actually the experiences I had in high school made me feel quite worthless And I thought if I could have worth, like actual financial worth, uh, I would put value to myself. The problem was I I hated what I was doing. I wasn't passionate about it. And my grades were suffering because of it. And I was actually at risk of of flunking out of university. Um, And so I was really concerned. But I found a course uh, that was called Politics, Science and the Environment. And it was a course that completely changed my life.
0: So tell me about the course.
2: So the course was a problem-based learning style course where it was a group of eight people and because we we jived so well as a, as a group, uh, our uh, facilitator said, I don't want to break this up after the semester. And so we ended up taking a field course over the summer to Botswana in southern Africa uh, and it was my my first time leaving North America.
0: So, It was wheels down in Botswana, but for Gavin, it's when life felt like it was truly taking off
2: seeing all this like the traffic and hearing all the noise and it was it was dusty and it was hot I got to see wildlife that I only saw you know, in movies like you know there was lions and zebra giraffes um, and the the work itself was doing uh, studies for an ecotourism resort where tourists would come in and members from the community would take part in, in uh, managing the facilities and then revenue or profits from the facility would go to support things within the community like school schools or wells, water treatment uh, programs, uh, educational opportunities. The problem was the facility wasn't generating profit and so the communities weren't getting the money that they needed to invest in themselves.
0: Gavin and his fellow students decided they wanted to see what was happening with the profits from the ecotourism resort.
2: And so we went into the local community, and it was there where my eyes were really opened. Uh, I saw a school that was one classroom for for multiple grades. I saw, really I saw poverty up close and and personal for the first time, and um, a lot of malnourishment and hunger issues. Um, And I just remember um, walking around and feeling just feeling uneasy because I, I didn't I, my my privilege was on display um, and I just realized like I, I don't really know what to do I don't know how to process what I'm seeing um, so I I paid attention to what was going on we went into a school and you know we got to um, like engage with the kids and seeing you know the laughter and the smiles of the kids and just being able to to see like such innocent innocent joy when right. Outside, you know that there was suffering happening. We knew that this uh, facility wasn't generating the profits it needed. We knew there were food shortages. We knew the water supply needed uh, better filtration. And and so it was. I just felt on that. I, I didn't know where what to do. I didn't know what to do with what I was seeing. On the flight back, I realized that I was on such a selfish trajectory to prove to a bunch of bullies who I'll probably never see again something about myself when this type of need exists in the world. And I knew I still had a passion for business. I knew that I could use business as a force for good.
0: He started to toss away that rigid concept of himself and found his own hidden passion. He just needed one further push to go beyond his original vision. At this point, I want to bring in someone else, Zorin Krunic. He's the customer success architect at Traction On Demand. But you remember him from earlier in our episode. Remember this? Like Gavin, Zorin knows the potential that opens up when you let go of fitting in and instead live as your full self. So, you know, how would you say you are, you know different from, let's call it, the median tractionite.
1: Uh, I really liked what Gavin said about uh, his uh, re-examination of himself in terms of uh, uh, his approaches to what he wants to do. Uh, I was told that I'm different because I listen to classical music.
0: He's a philosophy lover and a numbers guy.
1: There was a math head in school, but then uh, I studied philosophy, so...
0: And the man knows a seriously impressive number of languages.
1: Don't laugh, please. And so I learned French to read a particular writer in French. And I learned German because I wanted to read the German philosophers in the original. I picked up Russian because I was in Russia. I picked Italian because I was doing... Then
0: there's one more obvious difference.
1: As you know, I do martial arts, I teach Aikido. I haven't uh, uh, heard
0: of anybody at Traction do that. So, Zorin came to work at Traction On Demand feeling like he was a bit different from the young vibe there. But he says there's a real benefit to that. And in fact, we shouldn't even try to fit in. Uh,
1: I, I think uh, it does uh, a couple of things. One is, if you let go of uh, trying to be in a box, is you... Uh, we will be dropping imaginary boundaries because the box is essentially in your head right there are rules out there uh, there are uh, a number of uh, you know people in the media that'll tell you what you need to do at any given point in time and one of the problems with that is not only that you know you adopt it and put it in your head and then you start uh, molding yourself to it but it's also, uh, I believe, it leads to you know stiffness we talked about before, and then you can't really benefit other people. And let me explain this: what this means. Uh, I believe that uh, if uh, you get rid of that, uh, as Gavin did, and if you start being yourself, i.e., not fitting in, uh, you become a better person. Now you become a more satisfied person. Let me let me maybe speak in basic psychological terms. You become a, a more satisfied person. Uh, you have more energy and you radiate this towards the world as well. And I do believe that uh, if only on that level, it will impact other people and the company level, if you have that culture, will impact uh, the, the success of your business. But essentially, again, going back to your excellent point uh, and Gavin's great story, I believe that uh, you will find a way in that case to benefit the world, not only yourself.
0: And that's just it. In Gavin's story, he is going to benefit the world. He just doesn't know it yet. So let's come back to him as he's touching down in Canada. Coming back to Guelph University, Gavin kicked into high gear. To start, he began working in student leadership.
2: I ran for the Senate, the Board of Governors, and the Student Union, uh, and actually won all three elections. And so I was a representative in three different bodies uh, of of governance on on campus.
0: He quickly set to work, realizing his personal mission. That's when he heard about a program called Universities Fighting Global Hunger. It's an initiative to help send much-needed aid and food for emergency relief around the globe. He got Guelph to join the effort, and then he convinced many other universities to follow suit. He even made it into a competition over which university could produce the most emergency relief meals to go overseas.
2: And it was um, really cool. It was these assembly stations where everyone packed a certain ingredient. There were beans and rice and and fortification powders, and then you'd seal the bag and everyone was running around. And my goal was uh, to set a world record. And we actually did. We packaged the most amount of emergency relief meals in, in one hour. Um, and the event was such a success, we did two more. And we ended up, over the next two years, packing a million meals uh, that would be used in emergency relief circumstances. And it was you know, thousands of people came out to these events. And because of that, uh, I was able to do some fundraising activity uh, in the Dadaab refugee camp in northern Kenya. And that was an experience you know, like no other.
0: Going to the Dadaab refugee camp, Gavin was reminded again of why he was set on this path of making a difference.
2: And I remember seeing the lineup of people trying to get in at one of the admission uh, centers, and you you saw people uh, as far as your eye could see. It was it was you know onto the, uh, the sand basically, um, in this heat, and it was just heartbreaking. And I think the aid workers who were working there are some of the strongest-souled, strongest-hearted people that I've ever met in my entire life, because being there for 10 minutes, um, I was in in tears. I was starting to break down. And they had been there for weeks and months volunteering. And it was at the camp that I, I learned that 800 million people were going to bed hungry every night, which is a massive problem. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. And in fact, under the sea, you know, the part of the iceberg you don't see was this problem that was much, much larger, and that was hidden hunger and malnourishment. And about 2 billion people were going to bed malnourished every night, with the largest form being iron deficiency. And I learned more about iron deficiency and learned that it was actually getting worse, not better, rates were going up, and it was having a serious global impact, but no one was talking about it. So I went back to the University of Guelph and I found an opportunity to do a Ph.D. in biomedical science on a solution to solve iron deficiency. So iron deficiency is getting worse for a lot of different reasons um, and actually spending on iron fortification was uh, is also going up. So we're spending billions of dollars on a problem that's getting worse. One of the problems was fortified products were very expensive, so people didn't want to eat them, or they had a taste, so they didn't want to you know, consume them. Diets are changing. Um, there's more meatless diets, access to healthy foods becoming more expensive, and so iron-rich foods are, are inaccessible. Um, and it's, it's really just, uh, iron deficiency is linked with poverty. Uh, and so if you can't afford the foods that have the iron, it, you know, that's going to be a, the problem that causes the iron deficiency. So I learned about research that was being done in Cambodia by someone named Christopher Charles. And he had developed a cooking tool that when you boiled it in liquid, it would fortify that meal with iron. So it was sort of like a cast iron pan in reverse. And I had seen some preliminary data from an initial clinical trial that was done. And it was incredibly positive. Not only did it have um, a high efficacy rates, but it also had high compliance rates. So it worked and people wanted to use it. And it was so simple.
0: He'd found what could be an amazing tool for combating iron deficiency. So once again, Gavin boarded a plane and set off, this time for Cambodia. What he couldn't have known as he traveled halfway across the world is that his life would never be the same once he touched down. You're listening to Waste No Potential, a new podcast about incredible stories of spotting untapped potential. The show is brought to you by the good folks at Traction On Demand, and I'm your host, Alexandra Samuel. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to follow us wherever you're listening from. You can also find us at TractionOnDemand.com. In Cambodia, Gavin met Christopher Charles. Chris's cooking invention was in its early days of development. It was a small piece of iron that could be added to your cooking pot to infuse your meal with this essential mineral. And it came in the shape of a fish, a symbol of good luck in Cambodia.
2: So Chris started the work in in Cambodia. Um, He had an affinity for, for the country. And when I was there, I thought... Perhaps, you know, research has been done here. Um, Let's try another country so we can grow the portfolio of data in other, other areas. But I mean, on my first day in Cambodia, I just fell in love with it, and I could see why he fell in love with it. Uh, it was everything from just the the hustle on the street, the busyness, the people are so kind, the smiles, the food is incredible. Um, and I just thought, you know what? And after learning about the history, too, and the need that the country had, I, I just said, this, this is where we have to continue. I want to continue to build the foundation of the product here.
0: Gavin was in unfamiliar territory, but... At this point, he's slowly realizing something. He's noticing the power of dancing to the beat of his own drum. Which reminds me of our other guest, Zorin, and how he began his unlikely journey of becoming an official Aikido sensei. I I do want to come back to the Aikido story. I'm so, I actually have been dying to learn more about Aikido. So I'd love to hear the story of how you got into it and how you you know became a sensei.
1: So uh, I started back in Berga did the old Yugoslavia and uh, I went to see uh, a practice uh, that a friend of mine took part in and I liked it immediately, Alex right but uh, Yugoslavia was starting to fall apart which uh, and because of nationalism which I hate from the bottom of my heart. so it was time for me to move. And I had a couple of uh, countries in mind, uh, but I chose Canada, obviously, because of Canadian values. But then I chose Vancouver specifically because uh, there was uh, a lived and taught in Vancouver.
0: You, you literally moved to Vancouver to train with this particular sensei.
1: Correct. Well, first I noticed is that Kalahar was uh, a very quiet person, uh, very polite Uh, which is typically the case with all senior Aikido
0: people. Yukio Kawahara Shihan was a local legend in Vancouver. He'd traveled around the world teaching Aikido and spent decades perfecting it. To Zorin, he became a close mentor.
1: It's going to sound very simple, but for me it's profound. At one point in time, he told me, you know, all you need to do is uh, practice and relax. And I know this sounds very simple, but uh, if I may amplify this a little bit. Two things we don't do uh, well in life is one is we don't put our energy into what we think we uh, like or what we like, right? So that's the practice part. Uh, But the second part is relax and that relax is even way deeper. What we don't do well in our daily lives, in my view, is we put a lot of our ego in things we do and when we put our ego and thought into things, we tend to uh, stiffen up stiffen up mentally stiffen up physically if you practice something that you like or want to practice and if you uh, disperse with your ego you are doing the best you can you're never going to do better uh, by doing anything else
0: through the lessons he learned from his sensei Zoran practiced honed his style and eventually
1: Kawahashi uh, asked me to take on uh, one of the dojos here and then after that which is a huge honor. He asked me to take over his main dojo, uh, original dojo here in Vancouver. When I say, you know, I don't necessarily want to fit in, uh, this is from the standpoint of doing what is right, doing what is needed, right? So if you think about this, in our professional lives, mine at least, is uh, you look after an area that is not a sort of a beaten path often right? So that's how I think about it, right? So from that perspective, I don't want to be in a box if that's going to mean that uh, I won't be able to satisfy the client, uh, satisfy our own team, connect people across the board, which I do as part of my job. Uh, Again, going back to Aikido. So yes, Aikido has influenced uh, how I deal uh, with my work, right? It is uh, 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 making sure that you do not have a collision with your opponent, but you use... Uh, that person's energy and your energy to get to a situation that uh, basically ends the violence, right? That means that we fit, right? You fit your opponent. And that's correct. However, if you think about this in wider terms, you don't fit. And why you don't fit is that you do not conform to any preconceived idea or what kind of response you would have to the situation. The situation itself dictates how you uh, react, not any preconceived rule. And that's what I've taken into my professional life as well.
0: What Zorin's getting at here really speaks to what's so limiting about trying to fit in. It's like you're constantly fighting an invisible opponent, this other imaginary version of yourself who conforms to all of those external expectations. Everything you have to offer, the energy you could bring to your life, your work, the world, it goes into that internal wrestling match. You react to expectations instead of harnessing your deep internal momentum. But like Aikido, instead of fighting, attacking, reacting, we can take all of those incoming pressures and transform them into momentum, momentum that is guided by our own internal voice, what I think of as that deep inner purpose. The power of following that purpose, we can see it in how Gavin decides to capitalize on what makes him and the lucky iron fish, unique.
2: When I was trying to develop the business model in Cambodia, we were hitting a lot of problems. Uh, I had spent some some money, some grant money I I had received on developing basically a travelling roadshow. And we bought a a tuk-tuk, which is a three-wheeler with a little trailer on it with our logo, and we had a mascot, which was a walking fish uh, within a chef's costume. And we'd go into communities uh, with a jingle that was basically to the chicken dance uh, uh, tune, and we would go into these communities and do these workshops and talk about iron deficiency, and we would do a cooking demonstration with the fish, have people use it, and we would tell them that, you know, this will help with those problems you're experiencing. And everyone loved it, but they didn't want to buy it. They didn't trust us, and where was the government approval? Why didn't the government buy it for us? And so the people, we were really struggling to make that model sustainable. At the same time, I had uh, requirements for my degree to uh, present the data. So I was presenting data at conferences and, and talking about the product. And every time I would do that, I would have a lineup of people after my session saying, I have iron deficiency, can I buy one for myself? And it didn't matter what country I was in. And that's when I realized that you know iron deficiency is this massive global problem that means there's a a massive global demand for it and so pivoted the business model to sell it online and a portion of each sale would go to uh, towards uh, providing fish for free to families in need I start in Cambodia but now around the world
0: this was the early days of e-commerce companies were still trying to figure out how to effectively sell products online but as it would turn out that was just the boost the lucky iron fish needed it was
2: my first time starting an e-commerce business. I started it in my basement. Uh, we had a very cheap website. And I would basically, I'd have to go to Cambodia a lot to, to oversee the trial and, and do some business aspects there. And I'd basically bring, you know, a suitcase full of a fish home, or we would have fish mailed to us. Because um, we weren't selling very many. It was like, you know, 10 here, 20 there kind of thing. So it wasn't actually generating any kind of revenue that would make this sustainable. And then... I remember waking up on the uh, Sunday of the May 2-4 long weekend and my email inbox was just overflowing and I had all these missed calls from uh, someone that was working with me uh, and I thought we'd been hacked, I thought there was some emergency and I called her and she said, something's happened and I said, what? She's like, we have way too many sales Uh, and we, we realized that the BBC had run an article about us and so suddenly, the story that was from conferences and stuff from local newspapers hit the BBC. And that's where we had thousands and thousands and thousands of orders to fulfill. But we thought, OK, got to fix this. And then now we know we have a winner here. Um, and then from there, we had people like Oprah say it was off the hook in one of the O Magazine uh, features. Um, I was able to, to share the stage uh, with Bill Clinton and, and Chelsea Clinton and hold up the fish and talk about it at a, a Clinton uh, uh, University event. So I had uh, been asked to go on Dragon's Den uh, for a few years in in a row, and I'd always been in Cambodia. And finally, I got a call saying, do you want to audition? And I was in uh, Canada. So I said, absolutely, I want to go on Dragon's Den. I was terrified of making a mistake, uh, becoming a meme, uh, you know, just really embarrassing myself, Um, but ended up having uh, very supportive comments from the dragons and ended up getting an investment, actually a bit of a bidding war on an investment. One of the the most incredible parts of the job uh, was being able to actually hear about the impact that it would have. One of the stories that I always think about is in uh, Guatemala, and I heard there was a mother who said, You know, I could never walk my daughter to school. I couldn't get out of bed. I was dizzy. I was tired. And after using this product, I can finally walk her to school every morning. And apparently she had tears in her eyes. And it's stories like that that remind you that you can get really focused on the data and all the macro level impact. But you really have to think about the individual impact you're having as well.
0: Since then, Gavin's received all kinds of accolades, from being awarded Small Business Leader of the Year, from the Canadian Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, to winning the Best Overall Award from B Corp, to appearing as a Forbes 30 Under 30, and more. I mean, there's been so much recognition for the business and for you personally. You know, is that what you would want to go back and tell that you know, high school Gavin about when he was having those tough, tough times um, and and getting bullied and and pushed around because he didn't fit in.
2: If I went back in time and told grade 11 Gavin that he'd have a PhD uh, be the CEO of an international social enterprise and be a Forbes 30 under 30 who was on Dragon's Den. I would say you're lying and who are you um, because I absolutely couldn't believe it I mean I woke up every morning feeling worthless and, and despondent I was I, I struggled with suicide uh, and to think that just being able to you know, persevering through that Telling those teachers, no, I, I can go to university. Um, having worth by the impact and the work I'm doing, not by money and cars. Um, I mean, it, it's just I wish I could. I wish I could go back in time, honestly, to say that because it could have made life a lot easier. But at the same time, it's been motivation for me um, to always never give up and, and never take no for an answer. Um, I think that the you know the trauma I experienced in high school has been fuel that's gotten me this far.
0: So what what advice would you give to other young people who feel like they don't fit in and wonder if they're ever going to find a, a way to make a contribution?
2: We're always looking for for complicated answers. And, and sometimes solutions have been done for generations. And so it's, well, that just has to be the way it is. Um, and honestly, we need to change things up. And, and so it's okay to think about innovation and it's okay for ideas to be simple. I think when we look at, the problems the world is facing—it's very easy to feel um, like it's too daunting and that we're screwed. Um, and I think that we, are, young people, are the ones who have the innovation, the imagination, and the drive to actually come up with the solutions to to solve these problems. Um, so I, I think that you know, let's let's find the answer. Um, don't take no for an answer. And it's it's their time to 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 shine.
0: So many of us go through a period of life where it feels like all that matters is fitting in. When the things that make us different from other people are the things we hate most about ourselves. But we don't have to get stuck there. Just like Gavin, we can find the ways that not fitting in can work to our advantage. After all, it's all the ways we're different from other people that mean we also have something unique to offer. Your strange choice of words, your quirky sense of humor, your unexpected approach to solving problems. They're all clues about where you have some special perspective that the world really needs. So please don't fit in and let that decision unleash your full potential. Today, my guests have been Gavin Armstrong, founder of Lucky Ironfish Enterprise, as well as Zoran Krunik, customer success architect at Traction On Demand. I've been so pleased to have them both, and I hope you've enjoyed the journey with them. I'm Alexandra Samuel, and this is Waste No Potential, brought to you by Traction On Demand, with production support from JAR Audio. This is a show about success stories, but let's be honest, life isn't always a string of victories. Sometimes we make mistakes, even lose what feels like everything. We collect scars in those moments, and it takes bravery to pick ourselves up and carry on. Join us next time when we're going to hear the story of Lillian Umarunji-Jung from Mumgri on how those scars can be the very thing we need to spot our own potential. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Until then, thanks for listening. The Waste No Potential podcast was created by Traction On Demand, a company acquired by Salesforce in April of 2022. All Waste No Potential podcasts can now be found at salesforce.com slash resources slash podcasts.